to do, but I think, well, there's many things that we together fail to do, and some of these are probably things that we should be doing. Um, and, um, and some of these things that we fail to do, don't do, and that we perhaps should be doing are things that we fail to do because we're, we're, we were ignorant of some aspect of the things that make that should make us um, do them. So there's some. So sometimes these inactions are um, result from or due to some type of group-based ignorance. Um, and standardly, uh, uh, philosophers have seen certain types of ignorance as an excusing factor uh, for wrongdoing. So under certain circumstances, if you didn't know certain aspect of the action you were performing or consequences thereof, you can be excused uh, if you were ignorant. Um, and what we're trying to do in a way is just looking at um, the different ways in which we can together fail to do things, or maybe I should put this differently, which we can fail to do things together, uh, resulting from a type of group-based uh, ignorance. Okay, and um, I guess in the end we do want to say something about uh, epistemic obligations that uh, have some kind of group-based aspect to them, that are not just individual, individual agents epistemic obligations. Um, as I progress through the tour, through the paper, we're, we're moving from stuff that, I've, well, that we have thought a lot about to stuff that we haven't thought much about. So basically, towards the end, I'll be more or less uh, making suggestions as to what we think, we, where we think we want to be going. And at the start, I'm hoping uh, things will be a bit tighter, but they will sort of um, become a bit looser and suggestive towards the end. So I'm very much hoping um, that since we're at the start of this project uh, for, um, for your feedback and, and suggestions. So clearly amongst all the different things that we fail to do together are some of the greatest challenges that humanity is facing. Um, we seem to be failing to do enough about climate change. We seem to be failing to do uh, enough about global poverty. Uh, we're often seem to be failing at doing something to change our political and social systems when we perhaps, when it perhaps would be a good thing to do that. Um, not all of these things are things we do wrongly necessarily. And in fact, um, for this paper and for the project, we're trying to not make any sort of substantive commitments. We're just trying to bracket the question of what ultimately our obligations are and what is sort of substantively the right or wrong thing to do. So we're trying to bracket that. I'm just assuming that all, uh, uh, all of us will find some of those examples uh, convincing in the sense of we'll find that some of those uh, would be um, wrongful kind of actions or failures, or at least morally problematic failures. So what we're going to do is, um, uh, oh, sorry, I should say something else. I've been talking about we in a kind of a really vague sense, and that's quite deliberate. Um, we are failing to do this, we are failing to do that. That's quite deliberate. Um, there's obviously a lot of discussion, those of you who, who know some of the discussion around collective obligations, collective responsibility, collective action, will know <coughs> that there's a lot of disagreement amongst people what, which kinds of groups can act and can have obligations. Um, 
So again, there's another debate we're trying to um, well, stay out of as far as possible for the purpose of this paper at least. <clears throat> the kinds of groups just to narrow it down that we're looking at um, groups that are sometimes called unstructured or loose groups of people. So in a sense, all of us in this room are an unstructured group of people. We're not organised any particular way to perform certain tasks, for instance, in a way that a corporation or a state is organised. Um, unstructured groups would also include the global affluent or um, people, I don't know, who some share some kind of um, <coughs> common uh, criteria. Okay, um, so one of our first steps to, it will be to narrow down the kind of inaction, the collective inaction that we're interested in. And what we're going to do is we're going to distinguish uh, between omissions, inactions, and non-actions. So there's a lot of literature on <coughs> uh, omissions as uh, intentional uh, non-actions, so to speak, as people deciding not to do certain things. That is not what we want to look at. We don't care about omissions here in this sense, about intentional omissions. We care about things that we fail to do and have no particular intention not to do. We just have no intention regarding those things. So <clears throat> those, are the, those are the kinds of inactions we're interested in. Um, what's really uh, important though is that we distinguish those inactions that are somehow philosophically interesting, relevant, and also morally relevant from the sheer, well, endless number of non-actions that a person sort of not, not performs. Um, so there's a whole lot of things, I mean, there's a potentially infinite things that we, we are not doing, right? Um, but not all of these are interesting for philosophical um, <coughs> discussion. So we're, we're, we're distinguishing um, those relevant um, and interesting or philosophically uh, fruitful um, kind of inactions from non-actions by, um, by basically defining or uh, narrowing down um, inactions to those non-actions that we have some kind of reason to perform. Okay, so I know this is still pretty vague, but that's the best we can do. It's based on a... Um, Partly on a, a 1985 article by well Jerry Talia, but there's also other people who try to make this distinction. More recent um, <coughs> philosophers, Randolph Clark, um, Scal Williamson, also try to adopt some kind of normative criterion for distinguishing relevant inactions from non-actions. Um, and so we found that uh, reasons should be the best uh, way of distinguishing them. So all inaction then is non-action, so all my inactions are non-actions, um, something that a particular agent did not do, <coughs> but not every non-action is uh, inaction. <coughs> so roughly inaction are those non-actions whereby an agent uh, is capable of performing the action in question but does not perform it, even though the agent has some reason to perform that action. 
Okay. Um, so let's see what what then is collective inaction. So, uh, as I said, that's the kind of type of problems we want to look at are collective inaction problems. Um, so what is collective inaction? Um, let's take the example of me and my brother who did not sing a duet last Christmas. A duet is something that, by definition, can only be done by two people together. It is a, a, what I call a joint necessity case. So it's the kind of thing that can only be done by, by two people, minimum of what well, a duet can only be done by two people. Uh, uh, but joint necessity cases are the kind of cases that can only be done by a minimum of two agents uh, acting together. Now, acting together again is here broadly conceived, so it could be just an outcome they produce together. So there's many things that, were, that it takes at least two agents to produce an outcome, where it takes at least two agent, agents to produce an outcome or perform an action. Um, so those are the groups of joint necessity cases, and we're actually only focusing on those cases. Anyway, we're going to come back to that in a moment to distinguish them from some other cases, but let's just start with, go back to my brother and I. Uh, but my brother and, me and I we failed to sing a duet last Christmas. Uh, we just celebrate Christmas together with the rest of the family, but we just didn't do a duet. Is that, a, in some sense, a, a collective inaction of ours? Uh, it is a joint necessity case, so it's a joint necessity kind of good, and you might assume that there's always some kind of reason to perform a duet. So it's, in some sense, meaningfully distinguished from just non-action. Um, but suppose it di just didn't occur to me to sing a duet with him while well, he was quite keen but didn't say so. So wasn't it just me who was failing to act and who that inaction should be ascribed to? Um, after all, I'm the one who is failing uh, to, to bring about the joint performance, right? Um, I think what we need to do is to say, to just basically draw a distinction here and, and just say, well, even though it looks like an individual can, especially for those joint necessity cases, individual agents can um, cause the failure of such a joint action or the production of a joint outcome, it is still um, a joint failure in the sense that, that one thing that isn't happening is the joint action or the joint outcome. So I think, does that make sense to people? <laughs> Nobody's nodding. <laughs> I'm not sure. Okay, yeah, thanks, Jim. So, so even though joint failure or, or this or inaction can be, let's say, uh, brought about by one person not cooperating, we still there's still two things that are not happening. I'm not participating, and we are not singing together a duet, right? So there's still the collective inaction that people want. Okay, so this little example shows that perhaps collective inaction isn't a very intuitive category. Uh, nonetheless, we'll just stipulate that collective inaction is the kind of inaction that concerns joint necessity cases. The things that don't happen when, for, in those cases where it require, where at least two agents would have had to contribute in some way or another. Okay, um, now there's one complication though. There are countless things that we could be doing together with others, 
and also could be doing alone. Um, so I just I call these joint capacity cases. Um, but they're not things that we need to duplicate together. We, for instance, we could say my brother and I are both in the same room and there is a table in that room and we could lift the table on our own or we could do it together but neither lifts the table. So is this now a collective inaction or an individual inaction? Because we're collectively failing to lift the table and we're individually lifting to lift, uh, lift, failing to lift the table. So obviously it gets very quickly quite complicated so our way out of this is to say we won't look at those cases at all. We'll just look at those joint necessity cases where you need to have two agents to produce an outcome or perform an action. So we just will ignore those cases because we don't know what to do with them. Um, okay. If we included them, it just to see like enormous amount of individual actions could be potential. Individual inactions could be potential collective inactions as well because somebody could have just helped me do this, um, the thing that I didn't do. Okay. So we're sticking to joint necessity cases. Alright, now, there's two more aspects, really crucial aspects to collective inaction. I said earlier that those people who are trying to separate um, non-action from inaction usually do this via the reason criterion. They say inactions are those non-actions of an agent that they have some kind of reason to perform. The problem though is when we look at sort of collective inaction or several people failing to do something together, what happens to those reasons? <coughs> it's at least not very intuitive that, you know, there could be some kind of collective reason or something. And in fact, because we're looking at those kind of loose and unstructured groups, um, we can't even say that there's, we, we, we don't even have the kind of group that some people in literature would want to ascribe some kind of mental states to. So we don't even have that kind of group, let alone whether we'd agree with that kind of argument that of ascribing mental states to groups, uh, or having reasons, or, or, other, or having certain attitudes, or something like that. Um, um, so what we'll do instead, um, turning to a concept that, as far as I know, was mainly developed by Christopher Woodard of so-called group-based or pattern-based reasons. Uh, and the idea is that um, where there is potential collective actions or joint outcomes <coughs> or patterns of, of group of action, those can give individual agents group-based group reasons for action. So uh, just to illustrate, well, I guess, uh, like let's say Hannah and I are trying to lift a table together uh, and the fact that lift, this lifting the table, let's say, is something that either we want to do or something that we've been told to do, um, this will give us an individual reason to play a part in that action. Um, so Woodard, Woodard puts this much more nicely than I just did. Um, he says, uh, and it's partly on your handout, on the short version of this, um, he thinks that uh, some of the reasons that individual agents can have are group-based reasons to the extent that they refer to actions or outcomes that can only be um, produced uh, or achieved by several agents together. Um, he says that a pattern of action by the group is capable of providing a reason to perform 
a constituent part of the pattern, so long as the group could perform this pattern of action, where that means that each member is willing to play her part. Uh, and the idea is not that there's a reason to perform, let's say, A in action, because it will bring about P, the joint outcome, or make P more likely. That can be the reason, but it need, it, it, it need not be the reason. Instead, it's the goodness or rightness of that pattern that provides reasons to perform its parts, just in virtue of there being parts of it. Um, so basically, it's just saying it's different types of reasons. There's some of these reasons that agents will have, some of these reasons for action that agents will have will refer to some kind of collective pattern. And they need not be, and they're not un undermined by the fact that perhaps somebody, not enough people are co contributing to, um, to produce the joint outcome. In fact, they derive um, their, I guess, normative force, I don't know if that's how he would say it, but that's how I uh, understand it, from the fact that they're being sort of, um, that, uh, that they're being constituent parts of the, of the whole, of the, of, of the pattern of the, of the joint action. Um, okay. So that's the group-based reason. So let's assume uh, or hope that people will find this uh, story about how we can use, still use reasons in the uh, uh, definition of collective inaction, how we can uh, use that by making use of this concept of group-based reasons. Let's, just, let's hope that people will find that halfway convincing. The other question is, of course, what it means for... Um, uh, a plurality or conjunction of two or more agents to be collectively able to produce something. That was the other part of our uh, definition of collective inaction, that something should be feasible and that agents should be capable of doing it. Now, again, this is a real big debate, and we're trying to, we're just going to go for some version of collective ability here because. Um, this in itself could, could obviously be a paper uh, of its own. Um, there's a lot of debate about the concept of feasibility as well in, in moral and political philosophy. And I'm sort of going partly with something that was uh, proposed by Holly Lawford Smith, um, so who thinks that um, feasibility is some kind of twofold criterion where it's binary uh, in terms of so-called hard constraints, so something is feasible or not, depending on whether it's at all possible for an agent to do it or not. Um, so that's the first bit. And then the second bit, it's sort of a scalar idea where something is more or less feasible, depending on how likely it is that an agent can bring it about, given that he tries. Okay. So I don't want to bore you with any of those details. Let's just assume for the sake of argument that there is some kind of plausible notion of collective feasibility or ability out there that we can endorse. Um, I think it would need to be time bit dependent, I suppose, sort of feasibility uh, constraints. Um, and it shouldn't be, and this is an important bit, the way we, try, we would try to understand it in this paper is we uh, wouldn't want to restrict it to so-called collective action in the narrow sense. Again, for those of you who are familiar with those debates, there's a lot of people out there who try to distinguish uh, individual action from what they think are different types of actions that have some genuinely collective feature about them. Um, usually they try to pin that down, they try to pin down a certain type of uh, intentions that they say are uh, specific to those collective actions. 
and then within those who agree that it's the intentions that separate individual from collective actions are people who have a very strong notion of collective intentions and some who have a very weak notion of collective intentions. The um, stronger ones uh, or the stronger notions would require some kind of interlocking intentions and then it gets uh, weaker as we go over, move over to the other side of the debate. We, again, that's a debate we're trying to stay out of. We're just saying we do not, we do not want to uh, restrict collective inactions to those things that, to the failure to perform a collective action in that strict sense. It could also just be a failure to perform, to bring about a collective outcome. Okay, it needn't have those, those uh, interlocking or collective intentions. We don't need those for the type of inaction we're looking at. Um, okay, good. That's the first bit. Um, collective inaction explained. Okay. Now, as we all know, some of the things we fail to do and perhaps should have been, do been doing are things that we fail to do because we're sort of ignorant of some aspect of those things. Sometimes we don't even know we could do them. Sometimes we don't know that there's something wrong about not doing them. So it's often ignorance um, uh, that, that leads us to, uh, to fail to do what, what we perhaps should be doing. Um, now the interesting thing is that some of those collective failings would also be due to some kind of ignorance, but perhaps the ignorance is of a different type when it comes to those collective uh, inactions. And the approach that we've wanted to take is to um, basically uh, just look at different types of collective knowledge and see what different types of collective ignorance there can be. The assumption being that ignorance is the lack of knowledge. Uh, that's some, some, something called the standard view on ignorance, and there's also non-standard views on ignorance. And again, this is another place where we'll just make a decision and say we're going with the standard view. Um, and so far, uh, we haven't encountered any problems with it. Okay, so if, the, if ignorance is the lack of knowledge, then there's different ways, obviously, in which one can be ignorant, and different ways in which groups of people can be ignorant. Um, the first and perhaps weakest sense of collectively knowing stuff is uh, what we can call shared knowledge. So something is shared knowledge in a group consisting of, let's say, two agents, A and B, if each of them knows that proposition. Right? So if Hannah and I <laughs> both know my birthday, um, then it's shared knowledge between us that when my birthday is, basically. It's as easy as that. Um, so that's good. Um, that's the basic version. Now, sometimes it's handy, though, that you don't just share knowledge with other people, that you know what they know. So uh, common knowledge is generally thought to be, to involve what I call some higher order knowledge, where it's not just some knowledge of a proposition that... Uh, different people share, but it's some knowledge about what the other person or persons in the group know. So, a proposition P, let's say, you know, my birthday, is, um, I call it level one common knowledge, 
among uh, <clears throat> two individuals, if it is shared knowledge, so they both know that P, and if they each know that the other one knows P. Um, so that's first level common knowledge. And then obviously <clears throat> this can be taken further uh, up to higher levels of uh, um, knowledge, of, uh, of um, higher order knowledge. And, and because in principle this can be taken much further, uh, some people or some people have criticized sort of this this way of framing common knowledge and saying, oh, you know, it's unreasonable and you know normal human beings they only have common knowledge up to a certain level and beyond that they basically just don't 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 reflect or don't actually have those those high order beliefs anymore. And that's all good and again that's another debate. Um, I find myself saying that a lot. <laughs> it's another debate I would not try to get into. We're just saying there is a sense, regardless of whether you want to call it common knowledge in a strict sense or not, there is a way in which uh, we can say there's some higher order knowledge if not only, if Hannah and I, let's say, don't not only share the knowledge of a proposition but also know that the other one knows. And perhaps even one step further, we know that the other one knows that we know. Okay, now... Obviously, these kinds of knowledge, like individual knowledge, in fact, uh, they can fail in different ways. They can fail at the so-called as first-order knowledge. So the group consists of Hannah and I can just not share the knowledge on my birthday. In fact, I suspect <laughs> that is the case. Um, so if we don't share that knowledge. That's uh, okay. Right? <laughs> That's totally uh, excusable uh, ignorance. Um, or we can fail to know at a higher level, right? So we can perhaps, we both know when my birthday is, but I don't know that Hannah knows, right? I mean, I guess there's always an assumption that she won't have that I know, um, but maybe I don't know that she knows. Um, so I was thinking, uh, uh, the emissions gap, I think, looks to me like a, possibly like a typical case of a, of a failure of a certain degree of shared knowledge. Now, the emissions gap is this gap between uh, the emission reductions that states have committed to uh, and the, gap, the emission reductions required to limit global warming to 2 degrees Celsius. There's a gap in reductions. We have to reduce more than what we've promised uh, to do. So, and in fact, an well, one of the interesting things is that through individual to the aggregation of individual efforts we could actually close that gap um, so if enough people across the world took relatively simple steps that gap could be closed and that's quite that's actually quite a powerful fact i don't think that many people are particularly aware of it so i think here we can say that there is in some sense a failure of shared knowledge and now thinking about it though um, thinking about this case and thinking about those real-world cases, I think we need to become aware that the definition I just gave of shared knowledge is perhaps a little artificial academic because the way I have to find it is as requiring each person in a particular group to know a pro certain proposition. Now, it should be clear that when it comes to those large-scale collective actions, um, it is often not necessary that each person knows something and then act on that knowledge. Rather, it just requires... Only you know a, a certain 
number of people, uh, a certain percentage of people are required to act. So I think this tells us that if we want to use the notion of shared knowledge in the real world, we probably have to adjust it, and we have to admit to degrees of shared knowledge. So we might want to say, when it comes to the emissions gap, there isn't the right degree of shared knowledge. That's my suspicion anyway. And, and that might be the case with vaccination as well, though I, I actually think with vaccination, probably the other <coughs> way around, that it are, at least in most places, still enough people who know the truth about vaccination. Um, um, okay, so that's just, but this is lacking or this is ignorance concerning first order knowledge. Okay, and then there is ignorance concerning higher order knowledge, where I don't know that somebody else knows. And that ignorance too can be responsible for, uh, for failure to act, or can be uh, at least encouraging uh, a failure to act. So one example is this. Imagine two neighbours who live next to this beautiful lake, and they both know, in fact there is common knowledge between them, that... Um, that diverting your household grey water into the lake will damage it and will probably kill all the life in it. However, they also know, and I've just some, somehow found out that if only one of them does it, it would be fine. It won't ever, the toxins won't ever reach that threshold where you know, uh, the lake dies. And that is shared knowledge. They both know that, but what, what they don't know is that the other one knows it too. So each of them, thinking they're the only one with that knowledge, will divert their great water into the lake. And collectively, they basically uh, kill that ecosystem of the lake. And collectively, they fail to protect the lake um, because they're ignorant of the fact that the other one also knows um, about that little that exception, so to speak. <coughs> or else, um, let's say if we want to... Let's say... Um, me and a friend, just going to use Hannah again, she's sitting there. Let's say Hannah and I are talking about going to some, some concert, some gig that we've heard of. And we, we just don't know where it is, really. Somebody, but somebody mentioned something that sounded kind of good. And we said, oh, look, um, let's just, you know, each go home. And if we find out in the course of the, of the afternoon, if we find out more about this concert, let's say we hear from other people about it, then we'll let each other know. Okay, so at some point I get a text from Hannah and she says, oh, I found out this gig, it's at Isis Farmhouse and it's at 3pm. Okay, now, this is now shared knowledge between Hannah and I, provided that I read my message. Now let's assume I don't answer. So, by not answering, I make the case that Hannah doesn't know that I know. So, let's see, I've got a very nicely written out version of this. Um, so she doesn't know uh, that I know, and that might actually change her, her actions. She might decide, oh, well, I texted Anne, and we sort of said we were going there, but she hasn't replied. Well, maybe I shouldn't be going there either, because she may, well not go, she may not have received my message, etc. So you may now not rock up, and maybe I go, and then there's a failure to meet at the pub uh, because of my failure to establish the second order knowledge. Okay, um, so what this tells us is that it's often very important to establish that kind of second order knowledge because it gives people, can give people additional reasons to do, to do certain things. Um, 
also tells us that WhatsApp, is it WhatsApp and I, iPhone messaging, they have these, they tell you whether the message was delivered and read. So by doing that, they're sort of establishing the second order knowledge. They're establishing, well, not only do I now know that when I read this message, well, I know when I send a message to the other person, or somebody has read it, or of course I don't know for sure it's the other person that who, it was, who was meant to read it, but I also know that they know that I know. Okay? So it's much harder now to get out of these appointments. Okay. Okay, so sometimes collective inaction will be due to a lack of or sufficient degree of first order knowledge, first order shared knowledge. Sometimes it will be uh, the result of lacking higher order knowledge. Okay. Now, coming to uh, the part that we only just <laughs> started to think about. As I said at the start, we're going from uh, things that are more worked out to things that we are still, that are very much a work in progress and very much part of. Um, or, or very much the subject of ongoing uh, uh, reflection. So, in a way, why we find this interesting is because, um, well, there's many reasons why we find this interesting, but there's obviously uh, one aspect of acting from ignorance which is morally really interesting, namely that generally or standardly people think that uh, some version of ignorance, versions of ignorance at least, excuse wrongdoing. Um, so scholars seem to overall agree that blameless ignorance excuses wrongdoing, but they seem to disagree on when ignorance is, ignorance is actually blameless. Um, so on one view uh, uh, that I've so far found quite convincing, um, ignorance is only blameworthy when agent has previously failed in fulfilling their epistemic obligations. Let's say in double checking and seeking advice and you know reading up on an issue or something like that. The idea being that we can't be directly blameworthy for ignorance because if we fail to have certain beliefs, um, this is not something. The beliefs aren't something that are directly under our control. Um, so the idea is that we can only be directly blameworthy for some kind of action that we didn't take that then led to us not having the relevant belief or the relevant knowledge. So, so on this account then, uh, epistemic, uh, and, sorry, we're only culpable or blameworthy of ignorance uh, in a derivative manner if we've previously failed to fulfill our epistemic obligations uh, and those are obligations to do certain things that will uh, result in an approved epistemic position. Uh, with respect to one thing or another. Um, so, clearly there's lots of things that, you know, we couldn't have known of. Well, here's one example I was thinking of, let's put it this way. Um, so, before climate change and its mechanics, let's say, and effect, were widely known, I think we can say that a lot of people were comparatively blameless of that ignorance, or we could at least say that the level of shared ignorance uh, in the general population was not due to any 
failure uh, in their epistemic obligations. It was not that before the first um, convention on climate change in, in 1992, it was not that that effect was wholly unknown. So, so, so it was had not been discovered 100 years earlier or so. Uh, but but it, was, it certainly wasn't so widely known that we can say that people who didn't know about it and acted in certain ways that were, let's say, emission-intense, uh, where emissions were avoidable, that they were necessarily to be blamed, blamed for that or blameworthy for that ignorance. This obviously changed with uh, adopting something like the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. And that's precisely um, the function uh, of some of those declarations. They uh, produce uh, shared knowledge. Not only that, they produce probably something else that I haven't talked about here, namely public knowledge. Not only do most people know, let's say, that climate change or, or other things that are relevantly talked about uh, at the international level. Not only do people know that these things are problems, but they also now know that most other people know. Okay, um, so making climate change widely known, generating shared knowledge, and probably some higher level of uh, knowledge, some higher order knowledge, um, was one of the effects, and the effect is one of the political functions of those kinds of conventions. Uh, before we could say there was at least, uh, well, well, both propositional and fact of ignorance, but people didn't even know that there was a problem. Not only were they wrong about the problem, like most climate change deniers are these days, but they didn't know there was a problem. Um, okay. So, I think uh, looking at the problem of inaction and ignorance through this sort of collective lens allows us to perhaps... Um, acknowledge that when there are uh, epistemic obligations, when we have epistemic obligations, they do not just concern our own epistemic position, but they, those obligations may well concern the epistemic positions of others, and that's precisely because uh, we can avert collective ignorance by uh, informing people, by spreading the word, etc., and we can therewith and that's not something that's in this paper, but therewith we can also change what people have obligations to do, obviously. If they're no longer ignorant of something, then, then they no longer have any excuses for an action, but they also, this might seriously change what uh, they are alleged to do. So I guess I'm just closing with that remark that uh, it shows that this investigation shows us that epistemic obligations do not just concern our own knowledge, but also what other people know. Thank you. <laughs>